You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. It's a faith that's separate from good works. It's a faith that does not save. It's a faith that has no acts of mercy. Prophets, nobody else, not even themselves. It's called dead. In other words, it's lifeless. It can't be demonstrated to anyone, and no one can know whether you have that kind of faith because no one can see it. It's a dead orthodoxy. Even the demons can affirm the truths associated with that faith, but they shudder in fear at the coming judgment of God on them. And in verses 19 and 20, it's something to repent from. You're to turn away from it. It's foolish. You're not to have that kind of a faith. James chapter 2 verse 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Pastor Tom will talk about the importance of having both faith and works in today's message. Works without faith is dead, for it brings glory to no one but yourself. Faith without works is also dead, for it brings no outward glory to God. It can be hard to balance the two, but when you've put your faith in Christ, He lives in you. And when He lives in you, His Spirit will help you live and love as He did. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 2 as he continues his message, Is Your Faith Dead or Living? I don't know if you guys heard or not, but uh, the Pope was in town. It's an amazing thing when the Pope arrives, what it draws out of Roman Catholics, the incredible devotion that they began to demonstrate to him, just coming out of the woodwork. I mean, people you didn't know are Catholic, all of a sudden, they're loud and Catholic, (laughs) and they're... They're everywhere. They're on every channel I turn to, every radio station. I was, ta- I was listening to two sports guys I listen to all the time, and they never talk religion. And they were virtually confessing their sins online. <laughs> how often did you go to Mass? Do you ever notice how many people sneak out the back in church, you know, after Mass is over and don't stay for the rest? And they were just talking on and on about their religion and uh, just brings out their feeling towards him. You know, some talking about going to see him. You see, of course, them kissing his hand and the whole devotion that's there. As you listen to Roman Catholics, you begin to realize and see that they measure their faith by external things, being baptized and going to the Mass and uh, saying the Hail Marys, confessing to a priest, whatever it may be. And that's how they understand the Christian faith. That's what they've been taught. And, uh, you know, with all the political and moral lecturing that the Pope gave to our country to our Congress, to our president, to everybody, and not that we don't need moral lecturing, but with all of that that he gave, one thing you did not hear from his lips is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a billion people listening to me, I think the first thing that I'd be talking about is not the things he talks about. I would be trying to explain and praying to God Almighty I'd be able to do it well, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that Jesus preached. This is Jesus' church. It's the gospel he preached. And then he picked apostles, and Paul preached it, and Peter preached it, and John preached it. It was a gospel of salvation by faith alone, based on works, not our works, Christ's works. In one sense, salvation is by works. What Christ did, living a perfect life, we didn't do that. Dying on a cross to pay for the sins of man, we didn't do that. Being buried, being put under death, none of us have done that yet. And then being raised from the dead. I know none of us have done that. 
His work saves. Our work, if it can be called a work at all, is to just believe in his work. Trust him. That's the gospel. But modern popes don't speak that gospel, whether it's John Paul or Francis or whatever. They don't speak that gospel. They don't know that gospel. They don't believe that gospel. Telling people to be good and to pass moral laws in the land and to go to mass and believe in God is not Christianity. Never was. What happened to that church? Church history, and church history is very worth studying. I know we don't talk a lot about it here, but church history, I think, is very valuable. It demonstrates that through the years, Catholicism morphed into its own sacramental religion. It didn't start out that way. It started leaning more on church traditions. Centuries would pass. Certain practices, certain externals. And they strayed from what were originally solid biblical moorings. The Roman Catholic Church, as it came to be known, originally was just Catholic, which just is a word that is universal. It wasn't Roman. Roman got put in there when the Roman pontiff elevated himself above the other bishops. The East still doesn't acknowledge the Roman pontiff, and they shouldn't. He's not above anyone else, but they came to believe that he was. But that Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches now, since Middle Ages, really, that no one can be saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, that gospel, the Protestant gospel, the biblical gospel, was condemned by an official council of the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, in the 16th century. And by the way, they've never repudiated that condemnation of the true gospel, even at Vatican II. It was never repudiated. Instead, what they believe is one must perform the works of the church of merit and participate in the church's sacraments along with their faith, and that is how grace is realized in their life. This priestly, sacerdotal system of salvation is not the gospel of Jesus. It's a system where priests mediate the grace of God to man. They mediate this grace through sacraments, and that's why it's so important for Catholics to participate in these sacraments. Rather than being born again by faith, as we understand the Scriptures clearly say, modern-day Catholicism teaches that salvation comes by cooperation with the church through rituals and sacraments, and of course, faith as they define it, particularly the sacrament of baptism and then communion, the mass, and confession to a priest. That is why most Catholics are so concerned they go to Mass, they make confession to the priest, and they measure their faith that way. Bruce Demarest in his book, The Cross and Salvation, writes this, Catholicism insists that the supernatural benefits of Christ's sacrifice are conveyed physically through the church's sacraments. Assuming the recipient imposes no obstacle to their workings, the sacraments mediate saving grace simply because they are performed in an approved way, ex opere operato. The sacrament of baptism is said to remit original sin, impart sanctifying grace, and unite the soul to Christ. The baptized person is justified not legally by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but as he or she cooperates with the sacramentally infused grace and performs meritorious works, end quote. Now, if you were listening carefully, you heard two words that began with a letter I that distinguish Protestant biblical gospel from a Roman Catholic so-called gospel. The two words are infused 
and imputed. Catholic infusion refers to God through the sacraments imparting to the participant more and more grace, more and more spiritual benefit and power so that now that they have that grace from the sacrament mediated through the priesthood, they now have power to behave more righteously. As you get more and more of this spiritual infusion, you do better and better. Go to Mass a lot, confess regularly to clean up those sins, avoid what they call a mortal sin that will kill your life, and eventually you will have enough power to live righteously, and God will look at you living righteously and say, you know what, you're living righteously, now because you're living righteously, I will justify you. In Catholic teaching, the infusions are really, really good stuff. Now, I'm getting chemotherapy right now. And I don't know what's being put in my body's really good stuff. But it's interesting that it's called an infusion. I think about that with that IV in my arm, you know. I'm getting infused. 18 of these infusions, unless they say I need more, it's supposed to do good stuff in my body. Okay, doctors know best. But it's a little bit at a time. You can't get it all at once. It'd kill you. With Catholicism, it's supposed to be really good stuff. They, they store up the merits of Christ and possibly merits of others, Mary and the saints, and because the church mediates this, they can dole that out through their sacraments. Have you ever read anything like that in the New Testament? Have you ever read anything remotely close to that in your New Testament? In their New Testament? Clearly, it's something that left its biblical moorings. In opposition to that is the Bible and Protestantism that affirms salvation not by infusion but by imputation. The Bible says, before you do any acts of righteousness yourself... If you will humbly believe in Jesus, God will impute Christ's righteousness to you in full and instantly, the whole thing. He will immediately declare you righteous before you've behaved righteously. And that's a good thing. That's why it's called gospel. Like the thief on the cross, what did he do good? He was hanging there. All he could do was affirm his faith in Christ. That's all he had. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he could offer was his faith. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Romans 5.1, listen to it carefully. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's past, right? Complete. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or like the publican who was a sinner and stood before God and said, beating his breast, God be merciful to me. And he actually calls himself the sinner. And Jesus said he went down to his house justified. What did he do? He just appealed to God for mercy. It's a blessed thing what the gospel is, and it's amazing how confused and contorted it gets out there. We're really fighting a lot in trying to communicate a simple message, aren't we? God takes the work Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection, and he counts that to our credit. Say, so that's not fair. It's not fair at all. What we should get is judgment. But what we get is his credit. All, he did all the work, and we get credit for it. That's not fair at all. But it is good news for us because we need it. He imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. Imputes is like a, an accounting term. You have a ledger, and someone's got a lot of money in their ledger. Then you got another ledger, and it doesn't have hardly any money at all. Zero in this ledger. So you take the stuff from this ledger, the money, and you put it in that ledger, and now this guy's rich. That's what God did for us. We're now rich. 
God does not make them practice godliness first, then look at them and say, you're godly, you're just. In fact, he does the exact opposite in our scripture reading in Romans 4. I don't know if you're listening carefully to it, but here's verse 4 of that chapter. You may want to look back at it. Paul writes this, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, right? You, you go to work, you worked how many hours this week, 40, 50, and you expect to be paid because you earned it. You get a paycheck, you don't say thank you. It's not a favor. And they don't give it, you know, you get up your little protest sign and you go like, where's the money? Where's the wage? You earned that. You deserve that. And that's what Paul's saying. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. But, contrast, to the one who does not work, that's what he writes in verse 4, but to the one who does not work, I remember a Protestant scholar debating a a, a Jesuit priest on this, trying to get this through their mind. To the one who does not work. Are you hearing that? (laughs) Does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly get justified. His faith is credited as righteousness. Wow, Christ's perfect righteousness credited to this rascal's account. Saving grace. Hallelujah. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's the imputation. It's a double imputation. See if you catch it. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. By the way, this is the only righteousness God will accept. The problem with Catholicism is they're going to work at it, and I feel bad for them. They're going to work at it and work at it and work at it and then offer something to God that God says that's deficient. That's not good enough. God's not a semi-holy God. You do know that, right? Some of you are studying holiness. You know that God is not a semi or three-quarters or 80% holy God. He's a completely holy God. Unless you come completely holy by your behavior, you'll never, ever, ever be accepted by God. He will reject you flat out. You need something a lot better than your works. And, you know, people debate, I'm pretty good. I worked hard. Okay, let's just give it to them. You're pretty good. You're a nice feller. You've given the charity. What a wonderful life you've lived. Are you perfect? No. You don't cut it with God. Luther called the righteousness that we get from Christ extranos, Latin meaning outside of us. If it was inside of us, it would be a righteousness we did, and we'd bring it to God and say, see, I've been good. Let me into heaven. Luther said, no, it's a righteousness that was acted and performed outside of you. You didn't do it. You didn't do any of it. And then it was credited to you. It's extra nose. This is what Paul wrote, Galatians 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, the law had many moral commandments in it, right? But through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, no human being, 
will be justified. Anyone that wants to go the route of the works of the law, to dead end, you'll never get there. Or Romans 11.6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So when they talk about a grace that has works accompanying it, they've nullified grace. Their grace isn't grace anymore. So what is the place of good works in our salvation, in our justification? The Roman Catholic Church teaches faith plus works equals salvation. That's their teaching. The Bible teaches faith plus nothing equals salvation plus works. The works, notice, come on the other side of the equation. You get saved by no works, and then once you're saved, you begin to work. And none of that is merit. That's all just thank you, God, for saving me. I'm now changed by you, and these are more your works in me. It has nothing to do with me, really. That side of the equation is what James is concerned with when he writes in chapter 2 that faith and works justify. We're going to look at that passage today, and I want to make sure I lay that out for you so you wouldn't be confused. The apostle Paul is on the other side of the equation saying, saying to legalists, you can't add works to Christ's work or you'll mess it all up. It can't be any of your works. It has to be all grace. James says, fine, but once you claim to have faith, there better be some works which follow. They're fighting two different errors. They're standing back to back as good soldiers and complementing one another, even though at first reading they sound like they're contradicting each other. So let's turn to James 2 and let's look at this again, I think, and hopefully for last time we'll get through this passage here today, but I never know. James 2, 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Notice James' concern. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, now he's talking about a kind of faith that's not really the faith that Paul would talk about. It's a dead kind of intellectual faith. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness." And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is not disagreeing with Paul. James probably had not even heard of Paul's teachings because this was written around 45 A.D., when this letter was written, and Paul's first missionary journey to Cyprus and to the Galatian region was begun in 47 or 48 A.D. The Jerusalem Council is sort of a marker date at 49 A.D. Their similar wording, we admit, is a bit confusing until you understand the different errors that they were correcting. Paul, as I said before, opposed Jewish legalists who thought they could gain merit with God by good works. James was opposing people who were already claimed to have faith but did not show their faith with works of charity, mercy, and love. He said, that's a dead faith. That's not a real faith. 
Both Paul and James agreed that you are saved by faith, not by works. They both agreed works must follow faith to show that you have the kind of faith that saves. The works don't justify you before God legally. James says they justify the reality of your faith before men and God. Now, as review, in verses 14 through 20, James presented nine attributes of what a dead faith is. You don't want to have this kind of faith. We talked about this the last couple of times. It's a faith which neither Paul or James would consider a true faith. What was that dead faith like? Just review those verses 14 to 20. A dead faith is a self-deceived faith because a person actually thinks he believes in God and Christ and he doesn't in any saving way. And so it's a very dangerous kind of faith. It's a faith that's separate from good works. It's a faith that does not save. It's a faith that has no acts of mercy. Prophets, nobody else, not even themselves. It's called dead. In other words, it's lifeless. It can't be demonstrated to anyone and no one can know whether you have that kind of faith because no one can see it. It's a dead orthodoxy. Even the demons can affirm the truths associated with that faith, but they shudder in fear at the coming judgment of God on them. And in verses 19 and 20, it's something to repent from. You're to turn away from it. It's foolish. You're not to have that kind of a faith. Today, we get the pleasure of moving on, verses 21 through 25, and and getting to the positive side of all of this and seeing some illustrations of the opposite. What does someone who has a living faith look like? Well, we're going to have two examples here. The first is going to be Abraham, and we'll spend longer time here because the text does as well. Look at verses 21 through 24. The living faith of Abraham, unlike this dead faith already. Verse 21, was not, another one of the rhetorical questions here from James, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? The answer, of course, is yes. James chooses Abraham as his first and primary example of what he means by a living faith. Why does he choose Abraham? Because Abraham is the quintessential example of faith in the Old Testament. There's one guy who's the sample, the example of faith in the OT. It is Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith, followed God by faith, ventured out by faith, believed God without seeing, a man of faith. He is the father of our faith today. He is the father of the Jewish faith. He's the father of the Jews biologically, but he is also the father of all who have faith in Christ, all those Jews, of course, who trust in Christ. We are children of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3.29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. We have a promise that Abraham had. We believe in that promise. We become his spiritual children as well. You know, Abraham is such a revered figure of faith that he's still reverenced by Christians, Jews, and even Muslims to this day. The Muslims really revere Abraham, at least uh, outwardly they do, and they uh, believe he is such a man of faith. They call him the friend of God, just as this text says. If Abraham is the most famous example of faith in all of the Old Testament, then Abraham offering up Isaac on Mount Moriah is the highest pinnacle of the example of Abraham's faith in all the Bible. That climactic event is so important. The Jews even had a name for it. They called it the Akedah, which means the binding where Isaac was bound and put on the altar to be killed. Of course, Abraham's journey of faith began long before offering up Isaac on the altar. It began way back in Ur of the Chaldeans where he received a promise from God. Go forth from your country, Abraham, and from your relatives and from your father's house, leave all of that, in other words, to the land which I will show you. Now you know why it's called the promised land, right? 
And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Great promises given to Abraham very early on, chapter 12 in Genesis. So Abraham did. He journeyed to the land of promise. He endured all of the ups and downs of life in the promised land. The book of James holds practical tools to help guide you to live as Christ lived. To live like Christ is to not only have faith like he did, but also to live out that faith. In today's teaching, Pastor Tom emphasized how faith and works work together. Works without faith is dead, and faith without works is also dead. Today's message reminded you that you can work just to work, but work done out of faith is what is genuine in the eyes of God. I am so glad you joined me today to dig deeper into God's Word. Before we share what's coming up next time, I'd like to give you the opportunity to join us in sharing the gospel message here at Discover Hope. Would you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this ministry? We're a listener-supported radio program, and all gifts are very appreciated. You can get all the information and donate online by visiting hopebible.org radio. That's hopebible.org radio. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will continue to journey through the importance of having faith and works. This time, you'll learn about others who did mighty works out of faith, and those works changed the course of history. Imagine, works done by genuine faith in God have the power to change people's lives. Amazing what the Lord can do through you if you just believe. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.